Uh, so we'll, we'll move on. Um, our next speaker is going to talk to us about a very important and up-and-coming topic, and that's PrEP. Susan Buckbinder is a professor of medicine, epidemiology, um, uh, and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. She has really been on the, the front edge of a lot of the studies that are looking at PrEP and a lot of the nuances, and she's got a, a, a boatload of information that she's going to talk to us about today. It's very important, very current, we're very pleased to have her here. Thanks, Mike. Um, so I am going to be talking about all things PrEP today. Uh, these are my disclosures and the learning objectives. I'm going to start off by talking about uh, who's most affected by HIV uh, in the country so that we can look at who needs PrEP most, and then we'll talk some more about the uh, clinical management of uh, PrEP. So I've divided the talk into five sections. The first is the epidemiology of who's most at risk. Then we'll talk about how PrEP should be taken, what adverse events should be expected and tracked, what do you do about serodifferent couples where one partner is positive and the other is negative, and then we'll end with PrEP 2.0, sort of what's on the horizon in terms of new uh, PrEP strategies. So we'll start with new diagnoses in the U.S., and we're going to start with a question. Um, which group are the, in which group are the number of new diagnoses rising in the United States? Is it uh, one, people who inject drugs, two, African-American women, three, Latino men who have sex with men, or four, heterosexual men and women? Please vote. I was hoping for a little dance music, but you know, go with what you get. So um, I've got some good news and some bad news, and uh, we'll, we'll cover that in just a moment. So the good news is from 2011 to 2015, we've actually seen a decline in rates of new diagnoses in people who inject drugs, in uh, heterosexuals, and in uh, white and gay and bisexual men. So that's the good news. The uh, bad news is that the two groups in whom the number of new infections is greatest we're seeing an actual increase in rates of new HIV diagnoses, and that's African-American men who have sex with men, and a 14% increase in Latino men who have sex with men. And overall, that means that over that four-year period from 2011 to 2015, we've seen a 5% reduction, which is a pretty paltry reduction if we're really trying to get to zero. So we're, I'm going to show you some data for those of you who are local to show you that you're doing actually much better here in Washington, D.C. Than, than the national average. So we know that about 70% of new diagnoses are occurring in gay and bisexual men. And if you actually look at the groups with the highest rates of infection, you can see that the absolute number is greatest in black and then Latino men who have sex with men, way out of proportion with their size in the population, followed by white men who have sex with men, and that's followed by black women. Um, fortunately, the numbers are not increasing, but that's a group that, and black men, um, where uh, HIV infections are actually increasing. I'm sorry, where HIV infections are disproportionately affecting that group. We also can see that if, with the darker colors representing uh, higher rates of new HIV diagnoses, that the rates are highest in the south, followed by the northeast and the west. 
And I thought I would bring that uh, down to the microcosm of Washington, D.C., so you can see that, in fact, the rates, again, are higher in black with darker colors than in whites, but that you've also got this geographic segregation of new diagnoses uh, among black and white populations in the city, and that the black populations really track with the poverty rates in the city as well. So that's the group where really additional intensive efforts are needed. Now the good news is from 2011 to 2015, despite the 5% decline in new diagnoses nationally, you've had a 52% decline in new diagnoses in Washington, D.C. So that's really fantastic news. About 22% are in women, 75% in men, and 3% in transgender individuals. But again, you also have these racial and ethnic disparities. The rates are coming down in the red bars in African-American uh, residents of Washington, D.C., but about 50% of the new diagnoses are in black men and about 25% in black women in the, in the city. So about 75% of the new diagnoses are occurring in black populations. The blue bars are white populations, and we're seeing a decline in that population as well. We're not seeing a substantial decline in Latino um, uh, individuals. So again, another group that needs uh, more uh, concerted effort to drive down new infection rates. So now we know who it is that needs PrEP. How is it that we should prescribe it? So I'm going to ask you, how do you prescribe PrEP? One is I haven't prescribed it. Two is I recommend only daily TDF-FTC. Three is I recommend either daily TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC. Four is I recommend either daily or perichoidal TDF-FTC, but that's only for men who have sex with men. And five is I recommend daily TDF uh, or perichoidal TDF for everyone who's at risk. So please let me know how you actually currently prescribe. So only daily TDF, uh, FTC. So we're going to talk about some of these other options. I think that's quite a reasonable um, approach to take, um, but we'll talk about when pericoidal might work. So this is actually a graph of the effectiveness of all of these different prevention strategies, most of which are PrEP strategies. And you can see that it ranges anywhere from very high levels, 75%, 76% to 86% among um, serodiscordant couples or men who have sex with men in the t top two to everything that uh, these are all effective um, trials. And then we have trials that where uh, PrEP was not effective. So what's the difference? Well, if you graph the effectiveness against the proportion of participants that actually had detectable tenofovir in their blood, you can see that there's almost a linear association you need to take the drug in order to get high levels of effectiveness. And if most of the participants are not taking the, the drug, then it's not going to be effective. So we think that that accounts for a large proportion of the variability. But it's not, we, we do see this differential um, uh, results in different populations. So these are the MSM trials, the trials in heterosexual serodiscordant couples and heterosexual men and women, and then uh, the rates in women. And the rates in women are, are substantially lower. So what's going on with women? Does PrEP work for cisgendered women? 
Well, there's a meta-analysis that was done of all of these trials, and you can see that with higher levels of adherence, you get a lower relative risk or increased efficacy of PrEP. So PrEP does work for women if they take it. But we also have to understand that there are some differences in the PK and PD of tenofovir in women. Tenofovir concentrates at 10 to 100-fold higher concentrations in rectal than in vaginal tissue. So, and it also is cleared more rapidly from vaginal than rectal tissue. So what we know from these PKPD studies is not only is adherence important, but for women, they really need to take it six to seven days a week in order to maximize effectiveness. And we'll talk about how that differs from men in just a, just a moment. There was also this question, what about um, the vaginal milieu, and does that in any way affect the effectiveness of uh, tenofovir-based regimens? Because what we know is that a lactobacillus predominance of bacteria in the vagina leads to a healthy vaginal mucosa, whereas um, when it's non-lactobacillus dominant, you can get inflammation, uh, barrier damage, and differences in antiretroviral drug metabolism. And in fact, if we look at the one trial of uh, tenofovir gel that was effective, you can see that it was really only effective with a separation of curves, 61% effective in a lactobacillus dominant population, but in a lactobacillus, non-lactobacillus dominant population, there was no effectiveness of tenofovir gel. So tenofovir gel doesn't work unless you've got a healthy vaginal microbiome. Is that true for oral PrEP? Well, it turns out it's not. Oral PrEP works regardless of the vaginal microbiome. And this is a uh, data from the Partners PrEP study of serodiscordant couples. Um, they looked at the ba bacterial vaginosis based on um, clinical criteria or the uh, lactobacillus uh, culture or Gardnerella or Bacteroides components um, from baseline. And then they looked at in the light blue lines, what was the level of, what was the infection rate in the placebo arm versus the tenofovir or tenofovir FTC arm. And you can see that in all of these groups, the efficacy was 63 to 77% regardless of whether there was vaginal dysbiosis. So PrEP does work in women when taken orally regardless of the, va of the vaginal milieu. What about for transgender women? Does it work? Well, we've got limited data. Um, there were 339 transgender women in the IPREX trial, and uh, the good news is that there were no infections in women who had detectable drug. The bad news is that only 18% had uh, detectable drug in their blood. And we, what we learned was that women were, transgender women were very concerned that PrEP and tenofovir-based regimens were going to interfere with their feminizing hormones. And so that, that was the group in whom uh, tenofovir levels were, were substantially, I'm sorry, yeah, they were not taking their tenofovir, um, their tenofovir FTC. And so there are data from PK studies that suggest that feminizing hormones should not be affected by a tenofovir-based regimen, but we're getting data now from studies in transgender women to be sure that, in fact, there is no interference between the two. So tenofovir-based uh, regimen, a TDF-FTC, should work in transgender women, um, and they need to be reassured that it should not interfere with their feminizing hormones. What about for people who inject drugs? Well, there's only been one efficacy study of a tenofovir alone in, um, wasn't a TDF-FTC study, it was TDF alone, in uh, people who inject drugs in Bangkok. And what they found was that you actually needed very high levels of adherence, 97.5% uh, under directly observed therapy to get very high levels of effectiveness. So the question is, is it that 
TDF-FTC would work less well in people who inject drugs. Well, we don't really have those data because they only looked at tenofovir alone. So we don't know if it's the lack of the, the, um, the dually constructed uh, medication, TDF, with FTC that is responsible for this, or if there's less effectiveness when you're exposed parenterally. It does work, but again, uh, people who inject drugs really do need to take it on a daily basis. And what about men who have sex with men? Well, there's some evidence that, in fact, men who have sex with men can get by with a little bit less tenofovir um, in their TDF-FTC regimen. These are data from the IPREX trial and another study called the STRAND study. So the STRAND study, participants were given two doses a week, four doses a week, or seven doses a week of TDF-FTC, and they looked at what were the levels in the uh, of um, drug in the PBMCs. And you can see that there's some overlap between the four and seven days a week. Uh, two days a week was down here. And then what they did was they plotted against that. Um, this was the rate of infection in the placebo arm in the IPREX trial. And this was the rate based on the tenofovir diphosphate levels in the PBMCs. And in looking then at the model, they found that if you only took about two doses a week, you got about 76% efficacy. But if you had four doses a week, you had 96% efficacy, and seven days a week, 99% efficacy. And that's the genesis of this estimate that men who have sex with men um, will have pretty comparable rates of effectiveness of TDF-FTC if they only take four pills a week. So the way that I counsel uh, patients is to say to men who have sex with men, you need to take this every day, but if you miss a dose here and there, it's not gonna be a problem. Whereas for women, you need to say, you really do need to try to take this every, every single day um, to maximize your uh, effectiveness. Now there's another regimen that's been tested in men in the IPERGAY study. Um, this was a study done in France and Canada. Um, and the regimen was, that, so people were randomized to get either TDF-FTC or placebo, and they were told to take it pericoidally in this 2-1-1 regimen. 2-1-1 is two doses before sex, the happy faces are the sex, and then um, one dose 24 hours later and one dose 24 hours after that. And it could be 2-1-1-1-1-1-1, depending on how much sex they were having, uh, because then they were told to continue to take one dose uh, daily pills for 48 hours after their last sexual episode, and if they then had uh, a gap, as long as the gap was less than seven days, they didn't need two doses for loading, they only needed one dose. So that was the uh, 211 regimen, and what was found was that in the placebo control trial component of this, there was an 86% uh, effectiveness in that study, and that when you actually uh, gave an open label to individuals uh, in the study, when everybody got uh, open label drug, there was actually a 97% reduction compared with the placebo arm in the earlier study. So it can be quite highly effective if taken um, adequately. But the, the question was, gee, how often were these men having sex? And on average, they were having sex about 10 times a month, and they were taking about 18 pills a month. Do the math, that comes up to about four and a half pills a week. And we just said that four pills a week is basically equivalent to seven pills a week. So the question was, does it really work for less frequent sexual activity? And so what's new is that last summer, the, the Ipergay study presented some data um, from people who were taking less than 15 pills a month, and then this is very important, 
and they were taking it with all of their potential exposures. So they weren't deciding, oh, this guy might be risky, but this guy isn't. This, these were people who said that they were taking it all of the time around the episodes, but they were having fewer episodes, and they were taking, on average, nine and a half pills uh, per month, and they actually found no infections in that group that were taking it consistently. So it does seem to work if you take it consistently, if you can plan for sex, and remember you're taking it two to 24 hours before sex, and the, the PK data would suggest that the 24 hours is better than two hours before sex. So how often do people, uh, well, so let me just first say that CDC is still only recommending uh, daily prep. And that's because there aren't any control trials in the U.S. of this uh, regimen, and the FDA review only looked at daily prep uh, regimens. It's also really important to recognize that this is only for men with sex with men. It's not for women, uh, where the PK is quite the PK and PD are quite different. Um, and the other thing to to bear, bear in mind is that you should not be not taking daily prep just because you're concerned about side effects, because there were equivalent side effects in the hypergase study to what's been seen in uh, the daily prep studies. So that's not a reason not to take it. But there are people who say, you know, I don't have sex that frequently, so I don't really want to be taking a daily pill. There were data at Croy this year that suggested that you could take it around the time of vacation, which is a good, you know, kind of like malaria prophylaxis. Um, <laughs> but you take your prep. Um, but you also need to know, so you need to be, know that you can plan for sex. And this was a study that we did several years ago asking over a thousand men, uh, did you, was your last anal sex episode planned? And about half said yes, it was planned, and about half said no, it wasn't planned. And when we asked the guys who it was planned, well, how long in advance was it planned? Well, it was, um, for most of them, minutes to hours. <laughs> so um, not so much planning. So when you're counseling your patients, they need to know that they need to take this um, two to 24 hours before, and it's probably best that it's closer to the 24 hours before. So two-on-one prep is going to be just for a subsegment of the population that's not having sex very frequently, that's willing to take it with all their partners, and um, where sex is being planned. So what is it that you need to do when you're prescribing prep? It's really straightforward and simple. HIV test, and it's best to get an antigen antibody test. Um, you can consider a viral load. Don't start PrEP if somebody's got uh, acute retroviral symptoms because you don't want to be putting them on sub-therapeutic, uh, sub, uh, sub, you know, inadequate treatment. Um, you need to get a creatinine because you're not supposed to use a tenofovir-based regimen if the creatinine clearance is less than 60. The only other tests, hepatitis B and, and C, just because you want to be able to treat for hep C if they have it, and hep B, you're not going to use a two-on-one regimen, and you're going to monitor people once they come off of PrEP just because of potential for flares. Uh, you're going to do STI screening uh, and pregnancy screening, and then you're going to counsel them to warn them, look, you might have some symptoms, predominantly GI symptoms when you start up, but it is going to go away in a few weeks. Just power through it, and you will f find that you feel better. Um, Follow-up monitoring is just HIV, STI, and pregnancy screening uh, every three months, and all three of those are important. The STIs, it's not because STIs reduce the, the effectiveness of PrEP. They, in fact, in all of these studies, there have been very high rates of STIs in both positive and negative men, and that's been increasing over time that predates uh, PrEP. PrEP works equally well in the setting of STIs, something we were concerned about, but there have been now a number of studies that suggest that it doesn't impact the effectiveness of PrEP. 
but, you, but because so many of the STIs are asymptomatic, it's important to screen on a quarterly basis and to test for HIV because, you, again, you don't want people staying on two drugs when they really need a, a more uh, complete regimen. So what about renal toxicity? Well, um, there have been a number of studies that looked at what, hap what, what are predictors for the GFR falling below 70, um, and they are if you start with a lower GFR to begin with or if you're somewhat older. Um, this was true also for the Partners PrEP study, again, uh, st starting with a baseline GFR that was lower, being somewhat older or being smaller. But the issue is, in this study, over 75% of the creatinine bumps that they saw when they repeated it were with spurious results. So it's best to just repeat the test because otherwise you can be chasing creatinines. And they found that, in fact, just screening every th six months for creatinine was adequate, that doing it every three months, they were just chasing after a lot of um, just noise in the measurement. Uh, the people who inject drugs did not have more renal toxicity um, in these PrEP studies. And in all of these studies, creatinine reverted to near baseline after the trial was over. So you do need to monitor PrEP, you do need to monitor renal function, but just be sure that there are real bumps in creatinine before you take somebody off of PrEP. Um, and then bone mineral density. The studies suggest about a one to 2% reduction in uh, bone mineral density at the hip and spine. But once you stop it, it comes back up to normal. Um, and there have been similar findings in 16 to 17 year olds. The important thing to know is that unfortunately PrEP is very, very highly effective, but it's not 100%. So there have been these reported cases now of well-documented high levels of adherence with breakthrough infections. Two occurred in people who were being treated for hepatitis B and they were on TDF alone. So we do recommend TDF-FTC for all populations. Um, but there have been a couple of cases of people being infected with resistant virus, as well as um, one case of a man with very high levels of exposure who uh, was, did have breakthrough infection. So it's very highly effective, but it's not 100%. And then about serodiscordant couples, um, the landmark study about serodiscordant couples was HPTN052, in which people were randomized to who were in serodiscordant couples, the positive partner was either randomized to start antiretroviral treatment right away or to wait. And the, there are a couple of important lessons. One is that um, in a substantial number, the, the uninfected partner became infected from somebody outside of the partnership. So obviously treating a positive partner isn't going to protect you against becoming infected from your other partners. So um, you always need to ask about multiple partners. But the uh, in terms of linked infections, the efficacy was 93%, and these infections occurred in people who had, uh, were not virally suppressed for at least three months. So you need at least three months of viral suppression before somebody is not detectable, uh, before somebody is not transmittable. Um, partners and opposites attract were studies in heterosexual men of sex with men, heterosexuals, men of sex with men, uh, total of over 75,000 exposures. Um, there were, again, some unlinked uh, infections, but no linked infections. And so on the basis of the HPTN052 data, data from uh, Partners Prep, data from these observational studies, the CDC came out last year with a statement that said people who take antiretroviral treatment daily as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have effectively no risk of sexually transmitting the virus to an HIV negative partner. So that's what, that's the U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable, and that's an important message. 
And it's important because some people think that condoms are more effective than PrEP. And in fact, condoms are only about 70% plus effective. And that's probably because people don't use them and also because when they use them, they don't necessarily use them properly or they may slip or break. So we do promote condom use for preventing sexually transmitted infections, but we promote PrEP to prevent uh, HIV uh, acquisition. The other thing that you've got to be careful about is that people will say that they're uh, not that they're undetectable, but they may not be. And this was an interesting study at uh, CROI this year in which they took a group of people who were, said that they were undetectable and drew did a dried blood spot and found that about half of them were truly undetectable. The good news is it was only like 12% who had um, viral levels of greater than 1,000. The rest of them had low viral levels. But um, if you're just hooking up with a number of positive partners and you don't know whether or not they're truly fully virally suppressed and stably virally suppressed, um, it would be better for those patients to be on PrEP to protect themselves. And we're not counseling our positive patients to talk to their negative partners about PrEP. So this was a study also presented at CROI this year that said that only 10% of men who have sex with men who had an HIV negative partner reported having the partner take PrEP. And in fact, 27% of those who were not virally suppressed had a negative partner who was not taking PrEP. So um, we should be talking to our positive patients, do you have any negative partners, and particularly counseling those who are not durably virally suppressed to encourage their negative partners to get on to PrEP. And I'm going to close by talking about PrEP 2.0 and beyond, which is sort of what's the next um, set of regimens about PrEP. Well, people ask, can we just use TAF instead of TDF? Because we know that TAF may have fewer, less renal toxicity, less bone toxicity. I've shown you that there isn't much renal or bone toxicity in HIV-negative populations, um, but what do you do in situations in which you've got somebody who does have a reduced creatinine clearance? Um, the problem is that even though, and uh, Dr. Hardy's going to show you some data from CROI this year that showed that uh, TAF-FTC protected macaques in um, there were previous data in rectal and now new data in vaginal challenge studies. We know from PK studies in humans that the active metabolites of tenofovir are unquantifiable in most tissues. And so the good news is that there is a randomized control trial undergo, um, underway right now called the DISCOVER trial in which TDF-FTC is being compared with TAF-FTC for PrEP in men who have sex with men. But until we have the results of those trials, we don't recommend TAF for PrEP. There are other agents, though, that are being uh, evaluated for PrEP, and particularly there's cabotegravir, which is a long-acting uh, integrase inhibitor that's injectable that can be used every two months that may protect against HIV infection. And there's a study underway right now, two sister trials, one in men who have sex with men in the Americas and the other in women uh, in sub-Saharan Africa to see whether or not that might also protect against HIV acquisition. There are some challenges, though, with these long-acting injectables. So while people are very excited about them, what you've got to remember is they're long-acting, but they've got this very long pharmacologic tail. And so because it's not dialyzable, we do this oral lead-in because if somebody were to have an adverse event in response to taking the drug, um, you can't get it out. It's, it's there, and it may be there for more than a year. And you've got very low levels that go out to a year or more. 
And so you may be at a range where you're subtherapeutic, but if you continue to be exposed to HIV, that maybe it's not a high enough level to protect you, but it is a high enough level that if you became infected, you would develop resistance. And so um, there are other strategies that are being tested, and you'll hear about some of those uh, in the next talk, but also other methods of delivery. So um, these uh, implants or that, that, uh, where you don't get this prolonged pharmacologic tail. There are other strategies that are also being tested, including active vaccination. We've got two uh, efficacy trials in Sub-Saharan Africa going on right now, and we've got two trials, one in uh, the Americas in men who have sex with men, and one in, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa in women testing uh, monoclonal antibodies. So more to follow on both of those. Um, and I'm just gonna end with two um, hot tips. One is if you look up preplocator.org, I just took a screenshot of I typed in Washington, D.C. to see uh, where the PrEP providers are. Each of these crosses is a PrEP provider. If you, if you click on it, you can see the address, the hours that they're open. Um, it doesn't tell you what insurance it takes. But um, uh, you can get yourself added if you're not currently on that by going to the preplocator.org website, and you uh, can fill out a form and get added. And then if you're trying to figure out how to help your patients navigate uh, issues of insurance and cost, I recommend that you go to the prep, um, sorry, the Project Inform website, and you can get this chart that helps you work through what are the different um, services available for your patients uh, to help pay for the cost of prep or for uh, laboratory testing. So, with that, I would be happy to take questions. I think a couple of those websites are uh, great if you don't know about them, and. Uh, uh, Susan showed also about DC some of the AIDS view. If you haven't used AIDS view, it's really a wonderful way to look at the city and to uh, uh, cut the epidemic into uh, various pieces to try to understand the demographics uh, better. Susan, in terms of the amount of prep that's given, where do you think the biggest lesion is? Is it insurance? Is it provider knowledge and enthusiasm? Or is it the fact that most communities are just not knowledgeable or enthusiastic about it right now? So um, I, I think in the next talk, there's going to be some data presented that from Croy this year that talked about uh, PrEP uptake nationally. But I would say that the, the, the big barriers are we as providers who are concerned that if we tell people about PrEP that they're not going to use condoms. I, I liken that to telling our patients that we're not going to give them a statin because we're afraid they're going to eat more ice cream. We do it anyway, and we should be um, prescribing PrEP for people who need it. People who don't perceive themselves to be at risk when they are at risk, so helping people to be more realistic about their sense of risk. And then some of it is um, concern about side effects and medical mistrust. But, I, and I would also say, sorry, cost, cost and insurance barriers are a huge barrier. Uh, and people come off of PrEP because they lose their insurance or they need to change providers, and they become infected in that interim period. So it's really important to counsel your patients to get back in touch with you regardless if they lose their insurance, that you can connect them with other services. In terms of the uh, several patients who failed despite being adherent to PrEP, uh, do you have any uh, uh, ideas as to why you think they might have failed despite being adherent? So in a couple of the cases, they were resistant. And then there's this question about this one case where it was wild-type virus. And the question is, can you overwhelm PrEP, even with high levels of adherence? If you've got, this was a person who had uh, 50 to 70 partners, rectal 
anal sex partners per month, had multiple STIs, was using lots of drugs, so had a lot of uh, inflammation, a lot of exposure. And the question is, is it, is it possible to overwhelm PrEP? And I think that we have to believe that it may be, and certainly if you've got a resistant virus, it may be. When you talk about being undetectable, uh, um, uh, are you talking about a viral load less than 20? You're talking about patients who never have a blip. How undetectable does somebody have to be? I, I don't think we know that for sure. The, the observational studies, um, remember, are people who have already been in stable serodiscordant couples for a while, and they haven't become infected. Um, what we say is undetectable is undetectable, so probably less than 20, but probably small viral blips, as far as we know, are not likely to, to lead to transmission, but we don't really know that. So again, you just want somebody who's stably, durably, virally suppressed. And if they're having blips, it's probably best that their partner at least consider, you know, if they're, if, especially if they're having frequent um, blips, that their partner at least know about PrEP. Uh, are you at all, um, do you have a different approach to PrEP and uh, people who inject drugs? Just that um, I think that it's important for people who inject drugs that they have access to clean injection equipment and access to drug treatment. Um, those are two really important things that augment PrEP. And then that they also get PrEP, but that they be told that they really need to take it on a daily basis. Mike? So um, I think what you said is exactly right in terms of women and the different uh, levels of uh, tenofovir in vaginal tissue versus rectal tissue, at least for now. Um, my question is your opinion uh, about whether at the end of the day you think that's going to matter. And in the context I'm saying this is that the, the actual procedure or the process of someone becoming infected of mucosal exposure is that the virus gets into the mucosa, then ultimately takes root, but then it has to spread throughout the entire body. And those cells, the lymphocytes, et cetera, would be protected by intracellular tenofovir diphosphates inside the cells. So isn't it possible that uh, the actual tissue levels may not be the things that are at play as it, opposed to, say, microbicide? That's absolutely possible. Um, all we can say is that it appears that women, uh, our problem is that we don't have a lot of studies in which adherence was really excellent in women. Yeah. When it was excellent, it worked really well. Yeah. So I would agree with you that we don't really know what the PKPD studies show, that the proof is in the pudding in terms of people taking it, but I still would err on the side of caution and yeah. tell women that they should be trying to take it every every day. But I also wouldn't discourage us from prescribing PrEP for women just because we're concerned that they may miss a dose here or there. Yeah. So stay tuned. What, what do you think the role of resistance testing is in discordant partners? And if the positive uh, uh, individual uh, has, uh, say, K65, do you look for that and then do something different in terms of PrEP? Oh, very good question. Um, we don't yet know what else might work for PrEP as part of the problem, but you could put them on a PEP regimen if they are K65, uh, if they do have a K65 resistance and they are not virally suppressed, you might think about using a PEP regimen um, that would be, that would use something other than tenofovir. That's also what's sometimes used when people have um, uh, renal insufficiency. I guess it's more about counseling. Um, I've had some patients, the ones that come to mind are 
women who do not have full control over their sexual partners, such as survival sex or things like that. And sometimes it's really hard to gauge how at risk someone really is. Um, so when someone comes to you with a story like that and is asking about PrEP, do you have any suggestions on how strongly to recommend it or not? I think that when people come in asking for PrEP, we should probably be prescribing PrEP because I think especially at the beginning of a relationship, we're, we're terrible at taking sexual histories and people are not necessarily very comfortable sharing all of their potential risk. So in general, if somebody comes in asking for PrEP, I would give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they need PrEP. I am going to probe a little bit, but for women who don't necessarily know a lot about their partners, a lot of the women who become infected have a single male partner. Um, and they don't, they're not always aware whether that partner is actually infected. Do you think that uh, PrEP ought to be over the counter? Pretty soon. Um, I, I think that uh, the problem with over the counter is just that you do, you really don't want to be giving it to people who um, have uh, renal insufficiency. And you also do want to be sure that people are getting HIV screened every three months and STI screening every three months. So I don't think it should really be over the counter. Um, maybe in the water. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, we, I do really think that they need to be under some kind of clinical management, but what I would say is that I think we're, it's way overkill for them to have to see physicians every time. I think that pharmacies should be able to prescribe PrEP. Nurses should be able to um, give out PrEP. It really doesn't require a high level of uh, medical uh, sophisticated uh, management. It's really quite protocol driven. So I would like to see this pushed out into pharmacies. There's a question here about the issue of confidentiality with adolescents who are given PrEP on their parents' insurance. Uh, comments about that? You need to know what your local regulations are. In California, uh, patients who are minors can ask for their uh, information not to be sent to their parents. But it is a real problem that people don't necessarily, youth don't necessarily want to be out to their parents. And yet youth under the age of 18 are not um, able to access some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the access, the, the other ways of accessing PrEP. So in San Francisco, we actually have a fund for under 18 year olds so that we can give them PrEP so that they don't need to use their parents' insurance. So you do want to talk to the patients about whether or not this is going to go to their parents' insurance and try to find ways to avoid having their parents know if they don't want their parents to know. Do you want to make a comment on the uh, recurrent theme of what the correlation is between the rise of STIs and PrEP? It's been, it was rising long before PrEP, but I don't doubt that both with U equals U and with PrEP that we are going to see more STIs. A lot of the STIs are asymptomatic. It's really important that we do regular screening because we can treat and uh, cure all of uh, these bacterial STIs. Mm -hmm. uh, and on one of your slides, you indicated that uh, patients shouldn't stop PrEP on their own. Do you want to make some comments on that? Yeah, I think that what's really important is if, if you're doing 211 and you're doing sort of this intermittent regimen, as long as you're using it with all partners, that's okay. But if you stop PrEP and you're having other sexual exposures and then you want to restart it, they really should come in again for an HIV test because what we've seen time and again is that when people start PrEP and they're already infected, they're going to develop resistance and we really want to try to avoid that. Okay, well, I'm sure uh, during the break, if you want to ask Susan some more questions, she'll be here uh, most of the day. So thanks, Susan, for a great talk.